From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, I didn't expect that we'd be spending this much time in a podcast talking about uh, Janice McGeehan's travels, but I think we're going to have to go there at some point pretty quickly in this podcast because that became an interesting subplot in something that we kind of expected to see happen on Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's put the top down and gas up the car and, and, and get right into it, Kevin. Uh, let's get on the road. <laughs> because on the road. this has to do with our breaking news where we left off last week, Governor Little's plan uh, to use federal disaster relief money, CARES Act money, uh, to help offset or replace um, the cuts to this year's public school budget and then create a grant program. Governor Little unveiled that Friday. We talked about that on last week's podcast, but then the vote of the Coronavirus Financial Advisory Committee came Tuesday. And as we talked about just before we turned on the microphone, the news of the vote wasn't so much of a surprise. That didn't end up being the news, uh, but the lieutenant governor made quite a bit of news, right? Yeah, yeah, she she certainly did. So, you know, the history here is that uh, you know this this coronavirus uh, financial committee has been charged with parceling out Idaho's 1.25 billion dollars of uh, CARES Act money, and what they're doing on Tuesday, and you were watching the meeting, was they were deciding the fate of this 150 million dollar plan that Governor Little announced on Friday. Now, when he announced it on Friday, and State Board President Debbie Critchfield praised the plan, and State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra praised the plan. You could see that the writing was on the wall. You could tell that this was going to pass. And, and really, you know, not to, to my knowledge, this committee hasn't really gone against any of the governor's recommendations on how to spend this money. So I think we all kind of expected going in that this was a done deal, even if it wasn't a done deal. I mean, it, 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 you could see this one passing. Right. right. And pass it did. A member of the committee who pushed to get on this committee because she had concerns about how this money was going to be parceled out, had some concerns about the state's response to coronavirus. She raised concerns about this $150 million plan. But as you wrote about on Tuesday, she literally mailed in her objections. <laughs> she did. That's a that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Tuesday's meeting got weird in a hurry. Um, and what had happened was Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan, Republican also, uh, someone who has asked for a seat at the table all summer uh, since publicly announcing that she had no idea that the governor was issuing a stay home order in the spring. Mm -hmm. She's asked for a seat at the table all summer. Uh, she appeared to finally have it by joining this coronavirus financial advisory committee uh, that makes the decisions on how to parcel out Idaho's share of the CARES Act money. Uh, so she has a seat at the table. They have this proposal from Governor Little before them uh, to offset uh, the holdbacks to the current budget year for public education and to create a grant family, a grant program for families. That's set for a vote Tuesday. About an hour and a half, less than an hour and a half before the vote, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan sent a memo to the members of that coronavirus committee, the CFAT group, and she outlined a bunch of concerns. She said, I haven't had time to go through and really look at this. We don't know. She suggested um, 
and, and this hasn't bared out, but she suggested that that may not be an allowable use of the funds, uh, using it this way to support schools. We, you know, I don't, I hadn't heard that from anybody else, uh, that, you know, she didn't present a lot of evidence suggesting that that would be a problem. And then she asked the committee to delay the vote, saying we need more time to look into this. So that's a significant enough, you know, kind of bombshell before the meeting starts. And then she doesn't show up. And she said in her memo that she wouldn't show up and participate. And that's when things just got interesting and took this bizarre turn down the highway, right? Um, because she had also... At, at some point on Tuesday, this is what we do know, is that uh, Lieutenant Governor McGeehan posted a photo on social media uh, showing her uh, en route to Stanley for a fundraiser with uh, Donald Trump Jr. Yeah. Um, now, you know, here's where the story gets even weirder because mm. you were writing the story on Tuesday. You you sought comment from the Lieutenant Governor's office and, and some clarification of what exactly was going on here. They were silent until Wednesday. Right. When uh, the Lieutenant Governor... Uh, put out a statement and, you know, dropped the fake news bomb and said that, uh, you know, media got it all wrong because uh, the photo that she posted on Tuesday was not actually a photo taken on Tuesday. Um, but also in her statement, and I think this is the crux of it, you know, you know, the, the photo stuff is, is interesting, but the crux of it for me is in her own statement, in her own words, she said that she was not traveling Tuesday when this meeting took place, when she did not participate in this meeting and sent an aide to monitor the meeting. Yeah. Now, you and I have covered CFAC meetings, you know, off and on this summer, especially when they've had proposals pertaining to education. It is routine now for members of this committee to participate by phone, participate virtually. I mean, it's it's 2020. And it's a meeting of, you know, it's a committee of folks from all over the state. People are not coming to Boise for every meeting that they're taking place. They're taking part in many cases remotely. Yeah. So my question here still, and I, I posted on social media, I, we did not get a response. I didn't expect a response, but I don't mean this as a rhetorical question. If Janice McGinn was not traveling on Tuesday, as she says, she was not traveling. If, if that's all true. Why did she not participate in this meeting in, you know, in a virtual format? If she had concerns about this $150 million and how it's being spent, why did she not take part in the meeting and, and do her job as a member of this committee and raise these concerns? And, yeah. you know, we talked about this before we turned on the mic, and I, I want to emphasize it. To me, it really doesn't matter if the votes were in hand to pass this $150 million plan. We all knew that. We all knew it was going to pass, but how many times, Clark, do we see legislators on you know all sides of an issue? They know they're outvoted. They know they're going to be outgunned. They know they're not going to win the, the day in in committee or on the floor. But they're in there fighting for their issues. They're in there fighting for their their principles. They're in there fighting for their beliefs. And you know that's part of politics. That's part of the policy process. And some of the sometimes you know you're going to lose, but the meeting provide you a platform to raise your concerns. And if, if Janice McGee had legitimate concerns about this $150 million, and there are questions about, especially on that grant program for families, exactly how that's going to work. If she had legitimate questions about how this money is going to be spent and whether it's going to be spent well, 
do your job and raise those concerns in a meeting. Simple as that. Yeah. And I think there's a few things to unpack, but I think it's important to, you know, the news is the 99 million and the 50 that all passed. The committee approved it without her being there. And and, and so the money was approved. I would have passed it with her being there. Right. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. But you raise such an interesting point. If she felt so strongly about it, that she's fought for a seat at the table. She had these objections. It's like you said, she literally mailed them in uh, rather than doing her job and going to the meeting and talking about these concerns. You know, maybe she would have brought something up that we didn't realize or that we didn't know about uh, that could have informed the discussion going forward. But as you said, it was a conference call. Um, She could have dialed in like everybody else. She could have joined a web stream. And the facts... Are not there are in dispute. Telephones and Stanley. Yeah, you know, the the facts are not. Many, but there are telephones in Stanley. There are telephones in Stanley, and and I'm pretty sure that there was Wi-Fi. Um, but regardless of whether there was Wi-Fi or not, the facts are not in dispute. There was a meeting Tuesday, and the Lieutenant Governor did not attend the meeting and did not vote on the proposal uh, to backfill the school budgets. Yeah. That's not in dispute. The other thing that's not in dispute is that there was a rally for the Trump-Pence victory super PAC on Tuesday in Stanley, and the lieutenant governor was there. That's not in dispute. And so I asked, after she sent that statement out, you know, dropping the fake news, um, the fake news, you know, uh, accusations or, or whatever you would call that, I, I emailed her chief of staff and I said, okay, I see your statement here. I think we can really clarify for the public what happened? And so when was the lieutenant governor driving? When did she arrive in Stanley for the rally? And why did she not attend the meeting to vote on the funding for schools? And the statement from her chief of staff was, the lieutenant governor was not able to attend the CFAC meeting for personal reasons. No further comment. So clear as mud, right? Yeah. And, and one thing that we should emphasize here as well is that... Um, the rally did not conflict time-wise with the CFAC meeting. The CFAC meeting was a fairly brief meeting, as, as my understanding of it was, and you, you covered it. It so was early time. afternoon, yeah, you know, maybe an hour or so, whereas the, you know, between Donald Jr. arriving in Blaine County and then the event itself in Stanley, I think those were like late afternoon, early evening type of events. It, the rally itself was billed as a dinner event, $2,800 uh contribution per person. So, you know, my my point being, you could have done both if you, if you decided to participate in a conference call. So this is not a Janice McGee did the wrong thing because she went to a fundraiser that, you know, politicians go to fundraisers all the time. She was not the only Republican, Idaho Republican, prominent Idaho Republican to attend that rally Tuesday. That's not even the issue. Right. The, The issue is you've got a meeting You've got concerns about a large sum of money and how it's being expended. And, you know, instead of, you know, being there, you know, in in person or or by conference call, you you send an aide to listen and you you send in your concerns beforehand. That's, you know, know, you're an elected official and the people who elected you expect you to you know, to do your job. Right. And the whole photo thing and the driving thing came about because she posted a photo of herself driving on Tuesday and said, what do you do after you've just met your president, referring to President Donald Trump, who she met earlier? 
What do you do next? You hop in your car and you drive to Stanley to see Donald Jr. She tweeted that with the photo on Tuesday before the meeting. So that she created that situation, you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it it, it borders on gaslighting. It really, you know, you or or at least or, you know. She created the issue by, you know, making. Making it clear that she was, you know, spending part of Tuesday at a political fundraiser. Yeah, it's like is perfectly entitled to do. Yeah, it's like if I call in sick during the first week of the legislative session, it's probably not going to look good if I post a picture of myself on Twitter on a chairlift up at Bogus Basin. That's probably not going to look good, and you probably might need to explain yourself if you do something like that. And if I'm soloing for the state of the state for the first day of the session, and you're not there and you tell me, well, it's personal reasons, I'm like, well... <laughs> no further comment, Kevin. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? No, no further <laughs> like, comment. No further comment. No, no, that's not the... That's not how... So anyways, fake news or otherwise, that's up at the, uh, at the homepage. You can check that out. I wrote a little bit about that Tuesday, updated it Wednesday with the lieutenant governor's statement. But you can head to the homepage at www.idahoednews.org if you want to get caught up on what is becoming a shaggy dog story. Right, Kevin? And, 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 and here's what isn't fake. And, and maybe pivoting off of the, the McGeehan angle of the story. I did a breakdown earlier this week on this CARES Act money. I mean, we have yeah. now, now that we know what's happened with 150 million, we can say this with, with certainty. We've committed more than $300 million to education support in one manner or another, most of it supporting K-12 in, in one way or another. And I, I use support and the governor uses the word support because in a lot of ways, this isn't traditional education funding. You know, this isn't, permanent funding for, for K-12 that can be easily put into teacher salaries or you know, offsetting the cost of employee benefits or you know, hiring teachers. A lot of it is support in the sense of $50 million for parents to uh, you know, offset the cost of online learning, $20 million to reimburse teachers for getting coronavirus tests. So it's not really classroom support, it's education support, but $313 million of federal money to backfill education. And that is a ton of money. And yes, it's being spent quickly by virtue of this CARES Act. All the money has to be expended by the end of the calendar year. So it is a, it is a rush process. It is, you know, you know, that's how it's kind of wired to be. Um, And we just, you know, so I tried to break down the numbers and try to give you a sense of exactly where that money is going. Still more reporting I want to do about it, but that gives you kind of the the sense of how did we get to three hundred and thirteen million and where all is it going? That was a really good accounting uh, of the money that you had published earlier this week. That's also at the homepage www.idahoednews.org. But you broke down the money, where it's coming from, and as best we know now, where it's going. Um, but you, there, there's a difference between K twelve and higher education, though, right? There certainly is, and that came out uh, even last week when the governor announced this plan for K-12. I, I asked about higher education, and he said, you know, we, we can't keep everybody whole. What was his, yeah. you know, his quick answer? You know, we, we'd love to cover everybody, but we can't cover everybody. And we did give higher education about uh, $49 million of CARES Act money, and that is true. And, and a, a chunk of that goes directly to students who have been hit hardest and hit directly 
uh, by the coronavirus. So yes, the, the higher education system did get $49 million and, uh, you know, and some of that has been used uh, you know, for, you know, to prepare classrooms for blended learning. I, I wanna do more of a breakdown of where higher education spent its money. That's uh, on my to-do list. But, you know, higher education facing a series of budgetary challenges, uh, you know, a series of body blows affecting, you know, funding for higher ed, which kind of leads into our, our next big topic from this week. Absolutely. Uh, you took a closer look in particular at Boise State University's situation, uh, and uh, it's the two F's. Right now, and don't worry, you can keep listening. It's safe. Uh, the two F's, really friendly. Football, football, and furloughs uh, are kind of the two big topics of conversation at Boise State right now, and they're sort of related, right? Right. So the news really dropped on Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday was a busy day for us. Yeah. Uh, on, on Tuesday, uh, President Marlene Trump sent a lengthy memo to the university community, updating uh, on the budget situation and outlining all of the budget challenges facing Boise State, and there are many. And I, on my blog from Tuesday, I, I write about her memo, and I put the memo in in full. It's, it's 2,400 words. It is very detailed. It is very lengthy, but it gives you a really good sense of all of the challenges facing Boise State. The takeaway from her memo was that she said that job losses and program cuts of some kind or another are inevitable yeah. that there is there's just too much budget pressure right now that you you can't just you know nip away at the, the margins here you're going to have to uh you're gonna have to cut jobs you are gonna have to cut operations she did not say how much or what jobs or what operations or what kind of timetable really more questions and answers uh coming out of that that aspect of the memo on Thursday, two days later, yeah. uh, university leaders held a virtual town hall with the university community. It was President Trump and, and really the inner circle at Boise State taking turns talking about the budget issues and talking about the future. And you know, the thing that really struck me is we got a clearer answer about what's going to happen with football. Right. I got an answer about what's going to happen with staff furloughs or layoffs or job cuts. Um, <laughs> on the football front, everybody is confident that there's going to be football. Uh, perhaps late October, early November seems to be the target date that uh, people are gravitating towards. But the athletic director, Kurt Apsey, uh, and President Trump both expressing great confidence that uh, – there's going to be football on the blue turf this fall. Now, when you get down to talking about furloughs or layoffs or job cuts, which is really our, you know, that's our mission. We don't really write about football very much. We're just, right. we're just mm. fans. But when you talk about how this, you know, how this is going to affect the human capital at Boise State, how it's going to affect staff and faculty, it's really hard to tell. Um, the word on Thursday was that there are no plans for a university-wide set of layoffs or university-wide uh, reductions, which leads you to, it's going to be more targeted. Right. Broad cuts, it's going to be, you know, looking at specific positions that maybe are, uh, you know, are left dark or positions that are just not uh, mission critical anymore. And, and, you know, an emphasis maybe first on another round of furloughs 
Boise State had furloughs in the spring. This time, what I thought was really significant about furloughs was uh, Tony Rourke, the uh, interim provost, said next round of furloughs could affect faculty as well as staff. Faculty were, were exempt from the furloughs in the spring, and it gets complicated because faculty, they're on a nine-month contract, so it's harder to furlough them. Uh, this time around, you know, he left the door open that uh, another round of furloughs could affect faculty. So we really don't know what's going to happen at Boise State. We, we do know that the budget realities are, are tough and they are real. Um, you know, this is a university like all the universities uh, that had to cut in the spring. Yeah. Cut from the 2020 budget, had to cut 5% out of this 2021 budget right at the beginning of the budget year. Right. And uh, Mark Heil, the uh, CFO of Boise State, said he's been told expect cuts in 2022. Expect that 2022 budget that gets passed by the 2021 legislature, expect it to be smaller than what was passed this year. So, you know, state support, which is a big chunk of what uh, funds day-to-day uh, -day operations at Boise State, you know, keeps keeps faculty on the job, keeps, you know, keeps, you know, the buildings lit, you know, state support is going to drop. It could well drop again. And then it puts even more pressure on enrollment and puts more pressure on getting uh, tuition and fees and, and collections on that. So, yeah, Boise State's in a tough position. All of the state's universities are in a, a challenging position budget-wise. So, you know, we don't really know how this funding situation is going to work out. And, you know, oh, by the way, some numbers that Boise State released this morning, I'm going to get into it uh, Friday afternoon in my weekly uh, coronavirus blog, 77 new cases of coronavirus on the Boise State campus this week. That's almost double what Boise State had a week ago. Didn't they say it was a lot uh, tied to residence halls or, or yeah, students on and that, campus? And that's really a significant point here because, mm. yes, 42 of those 77 cases involve residential students, which means that, you know, Boise State now has 42 students in isolation rooms and isolation dorms. Um, they have 115 units, so they're not at capacity yet. But, you know, that's a tripling of how many students are in isolation from what you had a week ago. So that trend's not going in the right direction. And, you know, you have to wonder how that's going to affect, you know, Boise State's plans for what they're doing right now in the classroom, which is this blend of in-person learning and online learning. You know, it doesn't take long, you know, when you have this kind of an increase in cases to where you have, you know, universities and colleges having to get rid of face-to-face -face learning or put face-to-face -face learning on hold. We are seeing it happen all over the, the country. It hasn't happened in Idaho yet, but, you know, numbers like this are, are not encouraging. It's a weird, it feels like such a precarious place to be in right now. That new report, which, you know, just came out today or in the last 24 hours about the, the increase in cases on campus, we've got that situation navigating the ongoing back to school, but we're also, you know, making noise about going back to football. And, and it, it seems like a really precarious position to be in. And I guess we'll know soon enough how it shakes out or what happens, but it, it seems odd on the one hand to have had this increase uh, of confirmed cases on campus among your residential population, which 
I'm not an epidemiologist, obviously. I'm not even a very good journalist, as the lieutenant governor would tell you. But it seems to me that if the students were on campus in residence, that there would be more of an opportunity for exposure and contact with other students, too. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's going to be... I mean, I think we keep always saying, you know, we're going to watch it, the situation over the next two weeks and see what materializes. But um, an, an interesting place when we talk about higher education and, and the stakes are high. The money is real. Uh, the health considerations, we know the stakes are high there. Um, there's a, a lot going on, a very precarious well, time. Uh, right now. And, and like you, I'm not an epidemiologist, but my, when I see these numbers at Boise State, when I see a spike this week, that puts us two weeks out from Labor Day weekend. And that yeah. was you know, a, a concern among university and college officials is, okay, what happens on the long weekend? You know, no classes, you know, students hanging out for a long weekend. You know, how rigorous are our students, uh, you know, living by the policies of, you know, small group gatherings, uh, maintaining social distance, wearing masks, you know, how, you know, how diligent our students over that long weekend. I'm not, yeah. we don't know enough to say something happened Labor Day weekend and now we're seeing it. Right. Today. But we, what we do know is, and this is indisputable, we've seen a, a pretty significant increase in cases just in the past week at Boise State. And, you know, again, I'm not an epidemiologist, <laughs> but I know math enough to know that yeah. you can't have cases double next week and the week after that and, and not have a real problem on your hands. So well, there's all kinds of things. not numbers going in the right direction. Yeah. There's all kinds of things. Bars just recently reopened in, in Ada County and, and in Boise. And I know that a lot of traditional undergraduate students won't yet be 21, but some will. Uh, so there's just a lot of different variables in the mix. And I mean, I just remember all summer listening to Governor Brad Little and state epidemiologist, state epidemiologist Dr. Christine Hahn talking about concerns about the fall, concerns about the weather changing, about people's habits changing from trying to be outside to moving everything inside, uh, the concerns about back to school, meeting with traditional flu season. It just seems like that there's, I mean, there's always a lot going on, right? Like there's been. Right. A... <laughs> and, and those concerns are still there. And, you know, it, it kind of, it, it kind of dovetails to a piece I did this week on. The testing. On yeah. So, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the fall and we don't know what these tests, you know, test numbers are going to look like in the fall. What we know right now, it's, it's, it's fairly, uh, it raises as many questions in some ways as it does answer questions. Yeah, for sure. You took a closer look at, at testing as we're going uh, back to school and, and, um, but basically you found, and I thought this was interesting, uh, we're not doing as many tests as we had been recently, right? Can you kind of, uh, help connect the dots on what you were finding and seeing with the numbers there, Kevin? Yeah, so the, the number that jumped out at me, and I, I crunched the numbers over the weekend because it was, it was kind of stuck in my craw on <laughs> a Saturday afternoon even. Um, last week, for the week that ended a week ago Friday, September 11th, um, I'd received about 9,700 coronavirus tests, and that was the lowest figure that the state has received in almost three months. So you, you go back to June, you go back even before this big outbreak that we saw through most of the summer. That was, you know, the, the test numbers have been dropping fairly significantly just over the past few weeks. I mean, even as late as first week in August, Idaho was getting about 20,000 test results. 
you know, over the course of the week. Still not where they want to be, still not where Idaho hopes to be in terms of, you know, overall testing, but at least numbers that were trending towards, you know, more data, more information. Well, now as we're reopening schools, uh, K-12 and higher education and trying to decide, you know, how to have students in the classroom and how to juggle, you know, student face-to-face -face learning with student safety, at a time when you probably want as much information as possible, Idaho is actually getting less information from testing. And that really kind of jumped out at me. So, you know, that became a project I wanted to work on this week. And I did have a chance to talk to, to Dr. Uh, Dr. Hahn at, at length yeah. this week about it. And, you know, a couple of things that really jumped out at me, uh, talking to, to Dr. Hahn about the numbers. Uh, she believes that part of what we're seeing and part of the reason why we're seeing this drop off in, in, in testing is that fewer people are showing signs of coronavirus. Yeah. You know, fewer people have symptoms. So fewer people are going in for tests. So to some degree, it's a demand issue. People yeah. are not seeking tests. Now, that does not mean the tests are in abundant supply because you talk to the hospitals, you talk to St. Luke's, you talk to St. Alphonsus, and they both told me basically the same story. Um, they can't test asymptomatic people. Right. They don't have the access, they don't have the resources, so they have to ration testing to people who are showing symptoms. I think you can get a, a, a test for asymptomatic if you're going in for, uh, for surgery uh, or if you're going in for a procedure, and the medical staff need to know if you are you know, positive. So, but, you know, average person on the street who just wants to know for the sake of knowing if they're positive for coronavirus or they really want to have a swab stuck up their nose for some <laughs> for some reason, you can't just walk in the door at St. Luke's and get a test if you're asymptomatic. It just doesn't work that way. So there's a demand side of this. There's a supply side of this. One of the things that Dr. Hahn said that really stuck out at me too is, okay, if the demand is dropped this summer because our coronavirus activity seems to be slowing down somewhat and the case numbers would back that up, what happens in the fall? What happens in the fall when flu season kicks in, yeah. when people are feeling sick and they don't know if that sick is flu or a cold or coronavirus, and they do go in for testing. And they are at that point at least symptomatic enough that they're you know, eligible for a test. Then you've got more tests coming in, but you've got a longer turnaround time on the test results. So if you're a school and you wanna know if, uh, you know, if, a, if a teacher is, is positive for coronavirus, it may take you longer to get those answers. A lot of, a lot of variables here, a lot of, uh, you know, you know, a lot of factors that could play into what happens in the fall. Yeah, I was just, I was just struck by the testing and I was just struck by the testing numbers. And, you know, we, we write so much about the case numbers. I write so much about the case numbers, but I also write about the testing because, you know, you can't look at just the case numbers and not look at how many people are, are being tested. The, yeah. the two you know, are, are linked. So, you know, I, I was just really kind of struck by it. And, you know, I'll be really curious to see what happens with the case numbers and the test numbers going forward. Well, it's, it's interesting to me, and, and not to keep going back to this football thing, but it's interesting to me because rapid turnaround testing and making use of increased testing was one of the big talking points I had seen surrounding, you know, these ramped up discussions to talk about you know, getting a return to football at the collegiate level. And so that didn't totally make sense to me because 
I don't, I don't know. Like you said, overall testing is down a little bit. And rather than talking about like having these rapid turnaround tests for, you know, teachers and healthcare responders and people of that nature, we're talking about putting it to football at a time where you spoke to the hospitals and they said, we don't have enough resources to test everybody. And so that just sort of like is making my head explode. Um, right. And, and, you know, I talked to Dr. Hahn about the, the rapid testing because that's definitely a part of the equation going forward. She talked about how there's a new nasal swab test that's coming out that should be available in, in the near future that is really low cost. It's like five bucks a, a test. You still have to take it into a lab. And I think it takes a couple of days to get a result, but it's, it's much more affordable, you know, yeah. you know, somebody who, you know, even if you're not insured and you can get this test, you know, you know, five bucks down the road, you may have, you know, overnight, you know, saliva tests that, that, you know, can give you a give you an answer. The kind of Holy grail on the testing front is something that, you know, it sounds to me a little bit like a home pregnancy test. You know, yeah. you, you're a kid before school, you have, you you get a, a saliva sample, I suppose, or, or you know, you know, something like that, and you run the test at home, and before the school day, you know if your kid is positive or not. And you know that sounds great, and you know, Dr. Han said though, you know, we're a ways out from that happening, and and I asked, well, could we have a vaccine before we have that kind of at-home testing? And she said, yeah, that's that's possible. So, yeah, who knows where we're going to be in a few months, but. Where we are right now is we're getting, you know, a very finite number of test results. Very, very much lower number of test results than the governor's own coronavirus testing task force says we need. And this is the the data point that's, you know, driving a lot of the decisions that school districts are making, that university officials are making, that health districts are, are, are looking at, you know, it all kind of comes back to the testing because that's where you get a lot of your data. And, you know, when you're getting 10,000 tests a week as opposed to 20,000 tests a week or the 37,000 tests a week that the uh, task force has talked about, you know, you know, do the math. You're, you're just not getting as much data when you have that few tests relative right. to where you hope to be. Right. Yeah. Well, we're going to continue to cover it. There was a lot of things going on this week, a handful of stories uh, that we didn't get to talk about on the show today. I sat down earlier this week with Tim Hill, uh, the retiring public school finance head for the State Department of Education. His last day is today. Don't think he's listening to the podcast today because I heard he's going hunting. Uh, but I, I appreciated Tim sitting down with me and, and having a long talk about the changes he's seen in education and the career that he's had. I think most people in Idaho education circles will know Tim uh, because they will have sat through one of his budget presentations over the last nearly quarter century. Uh, we had some more news. In 20 plus years, I mean, a lot of institutional yeah. memory walked out the door uh, this week when, when Tim Hill retired. I mean, you know, as a reporter, I can attest that there have been many times that I've been, you know, lost in the, uh, in the quagmire of education funding and, and Tim Hill has been very patient. He's, he's a, he's a really, he's one of the good guys out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, very engaging, very accommodating, very, you know, willing to, you know, help reporters do their job better by helping us uh, understand a very complicated topic. And, you know, I can only imagine if he's that engaging and, you know, accessible and helpful to reporters, he's 
done the same for school superintendents, for trustees, for legislators. You know, you know, a lot of knowledge leading the uh, leading the SDD in, in one person. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about him is he worked for four different superintendents of public instruction. I think all, I think at least three of whom, two of whom may have had two terms, but he worked for Republicans. He worked for a Democrat. And you just don't see that, um, these kinds of high level positions um, carrying forward from administration to administration and, you know, bridging the gap between political parties. And I asked him, you know, how he, how he managed that. And he said, he, he tried as hard as he could be to be independent, uh, never affiliated with a political party in 23 years, never stuck a campaign sign in his yard. And I know, and he knows, that some of those discussions in the state house around the funding formula got really complicated and difficult in the last three years. But uh, it's a guy who told me he tried to stay independent and, you know, had the respect of, of his current and former colleagues. Uh, and so I, I appreciated him sitting down with me. And I think what he did, and, you know, you bring up the funding formula is a really good place to to, to talk about this because I think it really illustrates it. The decisions we make at the state level about how we fund education and how we structure the funding formula and, and who gets how much, you know, those are political decisions. Yeah. But the, the functioning of we've got, you know, $2 billion of general fund money for K-12. How do we make sure it it goes where it's supposed to go. How do we make sure that the, the, pol the political decisions that have been made are executed? That's policy. That's public policy work. Yeah. You, know, you know, Tim Hill was, you know, kind of the consummate, you know, policy guy. You know, okay, you, you tell us what we're supposed to do. You make the political decision. We execute it. We, we try to make sure it works. And we, we just follow it to the letter and get dollars uh, where y'all say they're supposed to go. So, you know, and, and then we try, then we explain it so people understand what what the heck's going on. Um, that was that was his role, and it's a really important role, and it's a really difficult role, and it's a delicate role because there's there's so much you know, you know politics surrounding the, the process. So, you know, a well earned retirement because you know he he certainly uh, you know did a lot for education behind the scenes. A lot of people may not really know the name, but uh, people in education circles, uh, they know, they know. Them. Yeah. So Tim, thanks for sitting down for one last interview. I know you didn't want to do it, uh, but it's over and enjoy your retirement. Now I learned a lot about him. That's a guy that likes to ski powder. He likes to camp with his grandchildren. He's hunted bears. I mean, that guy has plan. He's 64 years old and he has plans for his retirement and I'm kind of excited for him. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't think his plans are going to be, you know, Sitting around listening to podcasts. <laughs> no, he's not listening today. Anyways, that was a great show. It was a long show. There was a lot going on. It felt like Tuesday was like a month in and of itself. Um, but yeah, the weekend's here. So thanks for spending some time with us today. Uh, it's complicated and it's difficult to talk about a lot of times. Um, but it is important to break down this intersection of education policy and education politics. And so we thank you for spending time with us. If you haven't already, you can check out the homepage. It's www.idahoednews.org. In the meantime, I hope you have a good weekend ahead. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week. <laughs>